So many of you know that this week, this Wednesday, I'm actually headed out on a 11-day trip to West Africa to help to train pastors there, national pastors in Africa. And confession, I'm already missing my family. Over the 21 years that Tracy and I have been married, uh, we've obviously spent various times apart, but in certain ways, I found that uh, the longer we have been married, I actually, personally, uh, have more of a difficult time being away from her as we've been married longer. And I remember, I don't know, a few years ago, maybe more, where there was this aha moment that I realized when I was away, I, I, I thought about that, this idea of missing home and thought, you know, home, it's not just, it's not just a place with brick or wood that's put together. Home is, is more than that. Home is wherever Tracy and my kids are. That's, that's home to me. Now, now, you might wonder, like, why am I bringing this illustration up at this point in time? But there was this man by the name of Randy Alcorn that he once said this, we were created for a person and a place. Jesus is that person. Heaven is that place. And, and just like home is not only connected to a place, but it's connected to family. So it is that we see in Scripture that home is something more profound. It's not only connected to a place we go to, but it is connected to God himself. That's home. Like what I said at the beginning of this whole service, God, since before time began, but what we see even after Adam and Eve sin and treason against him, God has been drawing humanity home. He has is, he is communicated to them that he doesn't simply, this would be profound enough, he doesn't simply want to forgive human beings of their sin and take them back to a garden. But he wants to save them and he wants to bring about a greater creation where human beings can be home forever. And sin can never threaten that future creation. God designs to bring people to this place. God designs to bring people to him who is the center of this place. You know, as we've been singing these songs, it got mighty loud in here. And I just can't help but wonder and, and, and ask the question, are you homesick? Are you homesick for heaven? Are you homesick to see God face to face? Because he wants to dwell with you and wants you to dwell with him. As we've gone through this series on God's glory revealed through mercy, through judgment, we see that God has been communicating that message to humanity throughout the millennia. By judging, he shows human beings what we deserve. And then by giving mercy through those judgments, he's showing that he is a gracious and forgiving God, that people should turn to him and find forgiveness. This is the last week of this series. 
And just like I've done in every sermon I've preached in this series, I'm going to read again from Exodus. Do you remember the chapter? 34. Exodus 34. Don't forget it. Exodus 34 is where God tells us what his glory is. And so he declares to Moses, and then we're going to read these words together, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. What is this? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. Moses beheld the glory of God and quickly fell down and worshiped. God's glory is revealed as mercy comes through judgment. Or as James says, even mercy triumphs over judgment. Have we seen this in the scriptures through this series? We have judgment and mercy, every single passage we've studied. But I have another question for you. Have you experienced that in your life? Have you experienced God showing his glory in these ways to you. The hymn writer John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, I think he actually states this idea very succinctly in the hymn Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Stop there. What? Grace teaches my heart to fear? What's, what's Newton saying? He's talking about the judgment of God. Grace has taught me that there is a judgment. Grace has taught my heart to fear. But he doesn't stop there. And grace, my fears, what? Relieved. Judgment and mercy. Have you experienced that in your life? The glory of God in revealing these realities to you. Now, God has done this in order to call people home. He shows his mercy through judgment through the ages to call people to come to him and finally be at rest. Now today, this final sermon in this series is, is focusing on the future home. And my question for you is, do you walk with the Lord or do you reject him? Or maybe I could say it this way, will you walk with the Lord and no longer reject him? Because the main idea of this message today is for all who trust Jesus, we will behold his glory perfectly in our eternal home. Ah, oh, I can't wait. I hope for all here that your faith and that you yourself are excited, encouraged, and emboldened in Jesus as we go through this sermon and as we go through this text. And for any of you who don't trust in Christ, that you would see the grace and mercy flowing from God and you would turn to him. So this morning, we're going to camp out mostly in Revelation chapter 21. And then 
I'll jump into a couple of other places briefly. But Revelation 21, go ahead there if you have your Bibles. And then what I'm going to do is I'm just going to break apart this main idea here for the sermon. I'm going to go a little bit out of order, though. Okay, so we're going to start with beholding the glory of God. We will behold his glory, so let's behold his glory right now. What does this look like? Let's start in verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Someday, someday a new heaven and a new earth is coming. And, and we're even going to talk about this a little bit more um, later in this sermon. But I want to focus on the illustration that John gives here in verse 2, because this illustration even helps us to behold the glory of God himself, that he creates this place. It shows not just that this place is great, it shows that the creator of this place is wondrous. This new creation is coming down out of heaven, and John gives this illustration like what? It's coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. We still get this kind of illustration, don't we? Because many times, even in our day and in our age, weddings are very special. And, and many times, even uh, young girls still think, they think about their weddings, what it's going to look like, what they're going to wear. They imagine it and uh, look forward to it. Now, the wedding ceremony, though, was a little bit different in the ancient Jewish culture than it is for us in America, although we can get the illustration. But in the Jewish culture, a wedding, uh, it looked like there was a long engagement period, or a engagement period, I'll just say that. And that engagement period may not have been defined beforehand. What's going to happen is, at some point in time, in that engagement period, the, the, the woman who actually would have been referred to at that time as a wife, even though they have not covenanted yet. But she is engaged to this man, and she's preparing herself for this wedding day that she doesn't know when it's going to come because the husband, at some point in time, is going to have an entourage, and he's going to enter in to this city, and there's going to be a great party, and he's going to show up at his bride's house, and she's going to be welcomed into her groom's arms and be taken home. She's preparing herself this whole time for this wedding as a bride adorns herself for this wedding day. This place, this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and new earth is the most beautiful, glorious place you can ever imagine, like a bride adorned for her groom. Now, when I think about this coming down from the sky, I'm reminded of Jesus's words that he spoke to his own disciples, because this place doesn't just come out of, out of nowhere or from nowhere. This place comes from Jesus himself. Do you remember Jesus' words to his disciples? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. 
The words of Revelation here are describing the place that Jesus is talking about. Jesus has been preparing this place so far for millennia. This is beautiful. This is wondrous, right? God the Son creating this place. But what good is this place? What good is this place if there's no, nobody else in it? Or if I use the illustration of the bride and the bridegroom, what good would a place be if the bride marries the groom and then the honeymoon the groom isn't there and he's never with her in the future? It doesn't matter how beautiful the place is. It's solitary confinement. We continue reading in Revelation that this perfect place is going to have God himself be its resident. John writes of the vision in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This goes back to what I said earlier. Since Adam and Eve's sin, God is designed to dwell with us. From the tabernacle to the temples of the Old Testament, and even through Jesus' coming 2,000 years ago, God has intended to dwell. Remember John 1.14? I've brought this up in the past few sermons. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh. Who's the Word? Jesus. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the last couple of times I've brought up this verse, I've emphasized that Jesus shows the glory of God through grace and truth, just like we've seen mercy and judgment, right? But what I want to emphasize in this verse today is the word dwelt. That word for dwelt can actually be translated from the Greek as tabernacled. It doesn't make as much sense to English hearers when we, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But if we know our Old Testament, the tabernacle was when God came and dwelt, and then his glory came from that, from that tabernacle to show that his blessing was there. He's there with them. And John is saying, God, the Son, came and emanated the glory of God. Why? God's design is to dwell with people. And Jesus came to this earth, we know, in order to reconcile people to God so that they can dwell with him. When Jesus came the first time, many people rejected him and they denied him. But even in that rejection, that was part of God's plan, wasn't it? And that Jesus, through that rejection, endured the suffering on the cross by the hands of the sinful hands of people. But yet, by enduring that on the cross, Jesus endured the punishment that all sinners deserve. Judgment came upon Jesus. And then Jesus died, but then he conquered death by rising from the dead, thus conquering sin and death, so that when Jesus says to his people and to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place and I'm coming again. Well, Jesus ascended up into heaven after he died and rose from the dead. He ascended up into heaven. He's preparing a place. He's coming again and he's victorious, and he's glorious, right? We have hope to look forward to. Jesus tabernacled and left, but Jesus is coming again, and our triune God is coming to dwell with us, and he'll never leave us. 
He'll always be with us forever. This is glorious because John describes God in verse 6 as, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Verse 5 says he's the one seated on the throne. This, this phraseology, the one seated on the throne, means he's the one who reigns. But we can look around in this world and see reigning people. That doesn't mean they have all power, right? Thankfully. Okay? But we can look at Jesus, or we can look at our God and see him on the throne. And it also says here he's the Alpha and the Omega. That means that he is in control from everything, from beginning to end. Nothing thwarts God's plan. Did you know that? Not even Adam and Eve's sin, not any sin that has ever existed throughout the existence of human beings. Nothing thwarts God. Everything happens according to the counsel of his will, and he makes everything submit to his plan for his glory and his children's eternal good. Praise God! And then God is coming, and this God, this God will dwell with us. This God, the Alpha and Omega, who reigns on the throne. Behold! Can you imagine being there in that moment, hearing those words declared? Because I actually believe we as Christians, if you trust in Jesus, we're going to be there to hear those words. We're going to hear these words Behold, here it is. What? And the dwelling place of God is with man. The whole trajectory of scriptures is coming to this culminating moment. This is home. Being with our God. Behold our God. Now, let's behold and look at our eternal home. What is it like? Verses 1 through 4 say, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. John sees a new heaven and a new earth. Why is there a new heaven and a new earth? John gives us the answer, that word for. Okay, so the word for can also be translated because. So he gives us two reasons why there's a new heaven and, and a new earth. First off, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It's dead. It's gone. Why has the first heaven and first earth passed away? It's because of sin. Sin always leads to death, humanity's sinfulness, Adam and Eve's sinfulness coming into this world and our sinfulness. The world is going to die, and this is the day where it does die. But all of creation has been affected by humanity's sin, and even heaven, the heaven that we refer to that exists today has been affected by sin as well. Uh, Satan and the angels that fell, fell from heaven. And did you know Did you know that sinfulness actually can enter into the current heaven? Did you know that? Job 1. Job 1. Who came into the presence of God? Satan, right? Now, that doesn't mean that Satan wreaks havoc to the people who reside in heaven today, but the current heaven, there needs to be a new one. 
where Satan or nobody who is sinful can enter into this place. There needs to be a new earth where there can be no more sin whatsoever. So we're told by John, here, first reason why there's a new heaven and a new earth, the old one passed away. And this, this, by the way, shows the mercy of God too, right? Because God could just say, it's done. It's over. He could do that, right? But instead, God says, it's dead. I'm bringing to life a new one. Now, then there's a second reason why there's a new heaven and a new earth. And the second reason in the text might sound a little more confusing. And it says here, John writes, and the sea was no more. There's, there's a new heaven and a new earth because there's no more sea? Like, is John saying, like, all the water was wiped out from this earth, and it's like, man, if there's no more water, we got to start all over and create a new one so that there's new water on it. Some people actually look at this text, and they say, in, in the future heaven, there's going to be no water there because it says right here, the sea was no more. But, but do you remember, actually, in Revelation 4, uh, John talks about a sea that's crystal? You, you've heard about the crystal sea? Right? So then you're like, wait a second, wait a second, the sea is no more, but then there's the crystal sea. So what is he talking about that? What is he saying? I actually think what John is referencing is he's going back to Revelation 13, verse 1, where we're told that the sea is the originator of the Antichrist. The, the, the sea throughout the scriptures, water and oceans, all those things throughout the scriptures oftentimes refers to wrath and chaos. Okay, And so in this fallen world, that's what water does. And the Antichrist comes out of the water. And so what John is saying is at this point in time, there can be a new heaven and new earth because the Antichrist has been destroyed and defeated. And no more sin can come up out of the water anymore. No more sin can enter in because sin and sinners and sinfulness has been completely defeated. That's good news. Sin can't wreak havoc anymore. So John is saying, he's speaking of the chaos. It's no more. Jesus is victorious over the fallen creation. Sin is finally punished. Righteousness wins. The new creation comes. This should bring immense hope for us, I think. I mean, like I said last week, just looking at the creation that we live in today, pick the problem. It exists here. Right? We have issues and issues and issues. Looking at the news can be so sad and depressing to read. This past week, as I was studying for this sermon, I, I was reading some of a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. He was that 19th century preacher in England. And it's a sermon on this text. And Spurgeon talks about in his day, in the 1800s, how men of intellect in his day rack their brains to find out new ways to use gunpowder for this purpose, so as to be able to blow 20,000 souls into eternity as easily as 20 might be massacred by present means. And then these individuals are considered geniuses. And Spurgeon writes, Oh, it is a horrible world, appalling to think of. When God looks at it, I wonder why he doesn't stamp it out, just like you would a spark of coal that flies on the carpet from the fire. 
You get that illustration? I mean, that's God's power. He could do that, right? Spurgeon goes on. It is a dreadful world. But Jesus Christ, who knew that we should never make this world much better, let us do what we would with it, designed from the very first to make a new world of it. Truly, truly, this seems to me to be a glorious purpose. To make a world is something wonderful, but to make a world new is something more wonderful still. Now, what does this new creation then look like? It's so great that for the most part, all John can do is describe it by telling us what it doesn't have. Because we have to recognize, we are so affected by this fallen world, we don't really know what perfection is. We know what we experience that's wrong, though. And so what John is doing is he's telling us the things that are wrong that won't exist anymore. So we can at least have some kind of anticipation for going home and being with our God. So what, is it, what does it look like? The first thing that we see is that there's no more sin whatsoever. Based on the sea being no more, there's no more sin. That, that to me, I can't, even when I try to imagine it, I can't imagine it. Right? Do you know what I mean when I say that? John goes on in chapter 22 and says this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. We human beings were created to worship God, which is the greatest glory because God is the greatest glory. Right? We're created to worship him. And this verse says, no longer will there be anything accursed. That means, like in Eden, sin came in. Sin will not creep in to the new creation. It won't. No longer will there be anything accursed. We have no fear of threat. Right? Okay? And then he says, all who are his will worship him. Christian, listen. You will naturally wake up if, if we do sleep in heaven. I don't know. Just go with the illustration. You'll wake up every morning naturally trusting and obeying God. There will be no fight against sin. There will only be the joy of the Lord. That's, that's, that's what Jesus says. Enter into the joy of the Lord. There will only be the joy of the Lord the whole time. Nothing will be sinful. There will be nothing inside of you. There will be nothing, nothing outside of you. Worship. That's home. That's home. And then we also see wiping away tears. This phrase, I mean, I think this phrase has even more beauty. He's going to wipe our tears from our eyes. Christian, we battle in this life, right? And sometimes we don't even know where these battles are coming from. I'm just being transparent. I woke up this morning like, hit, what's going on? I don't understand it. 
And sometimes you can make it through days. Have you ever made it through a day serving God, but you feel exhausted at the end of the day? What did I do? What's going on? We struggle with internal temptations, with external trials, with family members who have died that we love. We go through this life and someday we're going to make it into home. And your God, your Father, somehow we're going to feel his touch, each one of us, as he touches our face and wipes the tears from our eyes. We're, we're going to be beautiful weeping messes, right? The glory is so great. And then he touches us, the one who has been with us through all of our trials, all of our pains, the one who has never left us or forsaken us. And then he comes to each of us and wipes those tears. Child, you're home. You're home. He wipes away the tears. And there's no more death. The only thing in life that's certain is death, right? I mean, as soon as we come out of the womb, we're deteriorating. We're, we're on our way to death. And yet there's going to be this, this world where there's no more decay. There's no agony over death whatsoever, whether it's from a pet or whether it's a grandparent that you love dearly and they die, or it's a child who dies. No more death. Praise God. The enemy is defeated. That's home. No death. And then John heaps up phrases, no mourning, no crying, or pain. All that we can think of is that any of the burdens of this life will be non-existent there. Can I, can I just ask you right now, if you take notes, write it down. If you don't take notes, just think about it mentally here. What are burdens that you are faced with right now or have been faced with recently? What are burdens on your soul and on your mind? I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you a few moments to think about it, so I'm, I'm not gonna speak for a little bit. And if you don't have paper, just think. What are burdens? Now I want you to imagine a day when all those burdens you've written down here, all the past burdens that you've had, and all the future burdens that you're going to experience, and imagine a day where all of those are addressed justly, completely satisfied, and there's no more. It doesn't exist there. It's gone. Because our just king, the Alpha and Omega, has answered it all. I want you to think about that. That is home. And finally, based on chapter 22, what we see is that this new heaven and new earth is better than Eden. 
In chapter 22, we see there's a tree of life and there's water in full supply. That is picturesque of the song that we sang earlier, we will feast in the house of Zion because we're going to eat from the tree of life and there's water that just keeps flowing from the presence of God. And and so that's picturesque even of the tabernacle and, and the temple and what they spoke, that God is preparing a table before us that we're going to eat in the presence of God. God's going to provide the nourishment we need forever and we will never die. We will be provided for by our God in every possible way. It's better than Eden this new heaven and new earth. We behold his glory and we worship him and we feast from his throne. Christian, that's home. Do you long for this? Now, we still have a little bit of a part of that main idea and that is for those who trust Jesus. For those who trust Jesus, this is the reality. And so my question is, do you trust Jesus? Read the, read the end of verse 6 and then going into 7. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. He says, to the one who conquers, he will have this. Now at first glance, you might think about the one who conquers and you'll say, okay, so to all the people who tried really hard in this life and, were, and ended up being victorious, those are the people that God rewards because, because of what I did. No, what did the verse before that say? To the one who is thirsty. Wait, the one who is thirsty is the one who conquers. What does that mean, the one who's thirsty? You think back to the illustration of Jesus with the woman at the well, and Jesus says, I'm the water of life. I give you the nourishment you need spiritually. And so what we read even in Revelation, this is for those who trust Jesus. It's not on the basis of your works. There is no way that you can make up for any of your sins. There's no way you can cleanse yourself from your sins. But Jesus has made the way on the cross, right? He has satisfied the judgment of God so that if you trust in him, he is just to forgive you of your sins. And you, Christian, are then called a conqueror. You, you thirsting person, you're the conqueror. Why? Because Jesus is the conqueror and you're united with Jesus. So we read chapters 21 and 22 and we see this beautiful picture of home. Oh, what mercy. But I also want you to see in the midst of chapter 21 and 22, there's still this call as people read this to recognize God is the judge. Are you going to choose home or are you going to choose death? Look at verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If you are faithless, meaning you, you refuse to trust Jesus as your Savior and your identity, if, if you are a person who is sexually immoral, if you lie and you continue on in that without trust in Jesus Christ, if you're an idolater, which means you value things at the level of God, you won't go home because you haven't trusted Jesus for the rescue. 
to rescue you from your own idolatry and sinfulness. God's judgment resides over you. In the midst of this beautiful picture, there's these little statements of judgment to help us to see the glory of God. Verse 8, verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it. In chapter 22, no longer will there be anything accursed. Do you want to enter home with God or will you refuse to embrace him and experience just punishment? As the book of Revelation comes to a close, which is then the book of God's revelation to human beings. And as we read of God's glory and mercy through judgment, it comes to this point in Revelation 22 where we read, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Why does God speak all of these things? Because he's saying, come to me. Come home. Look at the mercy through judgment. I will give mercy to you. Come to me. If you haven't trusted in Christ, trust him today. If you haven't turned to him, turn to him today. If you have more questions about that, come and talk to me or somebody else who will be standing up here after we sing. But then I also want to say this. Oh, that's, that's the verse I want to talk about. If you're a Christian, what I've just talked about today and what we've sung about today should compel us to grow in our repentance. God has made it so. I love these words that Paul writes. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, Paul could have said, and also to all those who trust Jesus. That's accurate, right? But he, he specifies, those who trust Jesus love his appearing. <sighs> Set our minds on things above not on things on this earth, for your life is hid with Christ in God. You long for home. If you long for home, you will grow in righteousness and repentance today. If you're a Christian here today and you're struggling and there's pains and difficulties, again, there are people here willing to talk to you, ready to talk to you, to pray alongside of you and to help you to get your mind focused on Jesus Christ to get your mind focused on the glory of God and home. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and lived the perfect life we could never live. He died the death we deserve to die, condemned on the cross and rose from the dead to conquer, to conquer death. Mercy has come through judgment. And as a result, God's justice is satisfied in Jesus and God is ready to give mercy to whoever would call on him. For all who trust Jesus, then, we will behold his glory perfectly, perfectly in our eternal home. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Even as we're about to sing, Lord, I ask that you would encourage our hearts in the reality of who you are and what you have given to us in Jesus. That we would sing and rejoice in the goodness of our God 
And Lord, for us who believe that we would long for home more and more. And that we would grow in living out righteousness in our daily life. For those who don't trust in you, that we would see you are a God of mercy. That your mercy does triumph over judgment. And so there's hope in Christ. So Father, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name belong all the glory. Increase our worship of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear these words. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Amen.